0: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As a teacher of high school religious studies in the United States, a huge area of interest of mine is the idea of religious freedom as it's enshrined in the nation's founding documents. This concept matters for how I discuss every religion in an American classroom. In the U.S., religious freedom is taken incredibly seriously By different groups. I often wonder about ways religious and government groups across the United States have used their specific understanding of religious freedom in times of war, peace, and in times of social debates in our country to impose a certain understanding of any topic upon other groups within the country and also upon other places around the world. So recently, an exciting book on religious freedom and the relationship between the U.S. and Japan was published by the University of Chicago Press called Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American-Occupied Japan. The author, Dr. Julian Thomas, an assistant professor of religious studies from the University of Pennsylvania, describes how the United States has repeatedly justified imperialism under a guise of religious freedom, including in Japan post-World War II. This book discusses that even though the Japanese Constitution of 1889 guaranteed freedom of religion, the United States occupied Japan from 1945 to 1952 and claimed they had replaced the Japanese law with real religious freedom. So how the term religious freedom is used matters, and we discuss that at great length in this show. So I had a truly delightful time speaking with Dr. Julian Thomas, who spoke to me from Japan in this wide-ranging conversation. We discussed the American concept of religious freedom, how it is used against Japan, we talk about the Japanese constitution, and we also talk about the misunderstood notion of what is often referred to as state Shinto. And we also discussed the differences of how the concept of religion is understood in Japan and the United States. So this is a fantastic conversation and a fantastic book. Um, so sit back and relax and please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jolien Thomas, author of Faking Liberties. Mm-hmm. I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Jolien Thomas. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: Can you just spend a moment sort of introducing yourself to the audience and kind of say what it is that you do every day?
1: Sure. Um, So I'm an assistant professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, There, I teach classes uh, on Japanese religions primarily. So I have course titles like The Religion of Anime, The Politics of Shinto, uh, but I also teach classes that are kind of more general um, religious studies classes. So for example, I teach a course called Violence, Tolerance, and Freedom, um, which is uh, about how various parties use the adjective religious to uh, sort of modify those nouns. Um, and uh, you know, as a researcher, I do research on a few different things. Um, I sort of spent some time looking at things like um, popular media, especially manga and anime, Um, so that's uh, comic books and cartoons. Um, And I also spend time um, doing research on things like religion in politics and law. Um, So I've spent uh, a bit of time working on religious freedom, um, and currently I'm living in Japan um, doing research on a new book that's about uh, education, public schooling, and religion.
0: Fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about your backstory for how you came to Love Japan? Because you, you've done so much work on Japan and you currently live there and I want to visit there so badly. Um, how did you come to Love Japan?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, so there's a there's a long story and a, and a short story, but I'll, I'll give the sort of medium version. So um, the Japanese government uh, has been doing these sister city exchange programs for for quite some time, and I happen to grow up in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, which has a sister city, um, Kofushi. Uh, it's a, kind of in central Japan. So the sister cities are often matched um, as being in similar sorts of locations or having similar sorts of um, characteristics. Um, So, you know, Iowa is a predominantly agricultural state. Um, Yamanashi prefecture is predominantly agricultural and and Kofu and Des Moines are kind of like large, relatively large cities within those kinds of states or prefectures. So when I was 10 years old, um, I had this opportunity to travel to Japan, um, which was amazing and I loved everything about it. And um, the food was great. My host family was great. Um, and so when I came back from Japan, apparently the first thing that I said to my parents when I returned was, can I go back? So uh, uh, Japan clearly left a major impression on me. Um, but I kind of forgot about Japan for um, for many years uh, and, and didn't spend much time thinking about Japan. I was not a Japanese studies major in college. I didn't study the language, um, but a quirk uh in my life sort of had me travel back to Japan um, shortly after I graduated from college. I was dating an American woman who um, had gotten a job in Japan. Uh, I was suddenly desperate to leave the United States. Um, And when she moved uh, to Japan, then it sort of provided this opportunity for me to um, make a major uh, life change. So I moved to Japan. Uh, the relationship didn't last, but um, I developed a new relationship which was a love of of Japan and the japanese language and um uh, and so that began um, what is really uh let's see that was almost twenty years ago, eighteen years ago, and um, I've been coming back to Japan regularly um for you know a year or more at a time since
0: wonderful you know uh, I grew up in Missouri, so not too far away from you. And when Ooh. I was 14, I actually got to go to the UK on like a school trip and I was over nice. there for about two weeks and that sort of in, uh, instilled in me a lifelong love of the UK and I actually wound up teaching at a high school in the UK about 10 years ago and it's kind of like, uh, so your your story resonates with me so closely because I've had a very similar experience of growing to love another place as well. So thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah, that's cool that we have that in common.
0: I love it. And, you know, in Des Moines and St. Louis, I mean, it's you know not that far away, and it's a, it's a fairly similar uh, lifestyle, so that's pretty cool. I love that. Um, so yeah. you have uh, become a scholar of Japan over the years, and we are here today to talk largely about your new book from the University of Chicago Press, which is called Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American-Occupied Japan. So the book is out now, uh, relatively recently, you're correct,
1: Yes, uh, just within the last month or so.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations on that release, because that is got to be a humongous feeling of accomplishment and a giant weight off your shoulders, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It's it's really nice to have it out there in the world. And um, uh,
0: you know, we've uh, we've got some mutual friends in common too. And I know that you've been currently on a thorough book tour of conferences and speaking events. And I've been following a little bit about it online, like our mutual friend Anne Glig. Um, who is the author of American Dharma. She posted some pictures on Twitter, and she said that Jolion Thomas is blowing minds at this conference. And then uh, I noticed you did an event with another mutual friend, Duncan Rukin-Williams, um, who was on the show recently. And so it just sounds like it's just been a fantastic experience. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the times you've had since the book came out? Yeah,
1: well... um, it's, it's been really, uh, it's been really fabulous. I managed to, um, have lots of, uh, invitations to come to, um, speak at various campuses. Uh, and, um, so the first thing that's, that's been amazing is just getting, uh, the opportunity to talk with lots of different audiences, uh, about the book. Um, and, and another thing that I've been sort of doing is, is telling a different story about the book at, at each one of these places. So I, I pick different chapters at random to, to talk about. Um, and, Uh, So that's been good because it it allows me to sort of um, share different facets of the book and and so forth. One of the things um, that's been really striking is to see what's resonated with different people um, as I've been talking uh, about the project. Um, So, uh, for example, in the epilogue of of the book, I talk very personally and in very personal terms about um, some of the Uh, Things that brought me um, to the book, and I often include that in my in my book talks. And I found that um, you know, after a talk I gave at the University of Indiana a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, a student came to me afterwards and said, you know, I really resonated with with what you had to say about that, and that was just really touching um, because you know, I, I felt like I'd sort of made myself vulnerable in this, um, in the closing pages of the book, but to see that that was resonating with people was really, um, was really striking and really touching. Um, and then the only other thing I would, I would say is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a scholar of Japan and yet I'm looking at, uh, a, a, an inherently transnational moment, uh, where American led, occupiers are based in japan um and i there's part of the book that's about uh, the united states or the american territory of hawaii um but i've I've, as as a result of working on this and in my new book i'm sort of reconfiguring myself not only as a scholar of japan but also as a scholar of the united states and so one of the things that's been really gratifying as i've been talking with audiences is really connecting with my um Colleagues uh, in the American religions field and feeling like there's really something that I have to contribute to that conversation Um, and so uh, It's been great to to feel like I'm I'm sort of tentatively beginning to describe myself as a scholar of Japanese and American religions And and that's um, that's really great. Even if it's not my formal training
0: Fantastic. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me, and you do talk about this a lot in the book, you encourage people that there are different ways that they can read the book. And you have a somewhat unorthodox, but very interesting organizational structure. And partway into the book, you actually advise readers that they can read the book out of order. And I actually took that advice, and I'm doing that myself right now. I'd love to hear about how you set up the book and why you made some of the choices that you did.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Because um, I, I think this is this is a, a, an experiment that will either go um, really well, or will totally backfire. And I'm very curious to hear how it works out for for readers. Um, so, you know, working on this book, one of the in the early stages, one of the things that I got um, from people who heard me talk about it was um, that it sounded like I was writing two different books. And in fact, one of my um, academic mentors said, why don't you just break this into two books? And then you've got like your tenure book and your other book, right? Um, right. You know, at, at an institution like mine, uh, it's sort of important to get, you know, a, a couple of, I, I effectively have to have two books out uh, or two books mostly done to, to get tenure. So, um, so there was this very uh, pragmatic decision where I could have taken what is now the first half of the book and written that and then taken the second half of the book and written that and published them as, as two separate books. But I, I was, um, convinced that the story wasn't complete without the juxtaposition. So the first half of the book looks at what's going on, um, with discourses about religious freedom, um, from uh, mostly in the period from 1890 to 1945. And then the second half of the book looks at, um, discourses about religious freedom during the occupation. So that's 1945 to 1952. And then, um, traces some of the ramifications of, of decisions made during the occupation through later decades. So, um, I, I, I decided to, uh, to stick the two things together um, because they don't really make sense without each other. And um, what I what I suggested was that for people who are kind of historians who are interested in a chronological account, a strictly chronological account, they can read it directly from the introduction to the conclusion. Everything will make sense. But as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I'm trying to talk to people who are not necessarily scholars of Japan, but are primarily scholars of the United States, or maybe interested in religion or religious freedom more generally. And for readers like that, I'm sort of suggesting that they start in the middle at um, chapter five, which is sort of the the onset of the occupation, read about that, and then travel with me back in time um, to read about the uh the sort of pre-war and wartime situation um and there's just one other thing that i would say which is there's another sort of like thematic approach which is to sort of pair chapters like one and five and two and six and each one of those um chapter pairs has a uh a, a sort of overarching theme um like say, diverse approaches to the topic of religious freedom, for example, is the, is the paired theme for chapters two and six.
0: Well, something um, that I would say about that is that since I'm not a scholar or historian specifically, I'm just somebody who's interested in these topics, the fact that you encouraged the reader to go about it in the way that seems most appropriate for them, that opened this book up to me in ways that may not have been able to be possible if you hadn't put that in there, so I, for one, am very appreciative of your efforts to go above and beyond and try something slightly out of the ordinary.
1: That's really great to hear. That's uh, that's very gratifying. Um, I hope that I hope that other other readers also have that um, that experience.
0: Can uh, <laughs> Can we go down a rabbit hole of religious freedom for a couple of minutes? Yeah, of course. Awesome. Okay. That's what this so this is all about. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, so. By reading this book, I am appreciating, mostly for the first time, this very full picture that you are painting regarding the tension between religious freedom as an abstract ideal versus guaranteeing that freedom in practice. So near the end of the book, you make some points um, about what freedom means, and you suggest that freedom and the guaranteeing of freedom... Might be somewhat paradoxical, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by this because this is really striking to me as I'm reading this book and thinking about these things for the first time?
1: Yeah, so let me talk um i'm gonna I'm gonna answer this question uh, kind of from personal terms because I think it it helps to explain where I'm coming from with freedom and then I'll talk more more generally about um, the freedom as it's guaranteed in law so perfect um i'm a I'm a non white person who grew up in a predominantly white city um, i uh grew up with a, a black father and a, and a white mother and um experienced um from an early age uh a, a sort of paradox in the American promise of freedom um you know my ancestors uh, arrived in the United States not as pilgrims but as um, cargo in the holds of ships and uh for for a long time in law um they were uh treated as less than human or insufficiently human. And it's not only that, but I, I also had a number of experiences growing up where um my own ability to take advantage of the American promise of freedom was clearly at tension with other things. So I, I talk in the epilogue of the book about um being you know held at gunpoint by police officers um, and and clearly as a as a result of of racial discrimination and it's part of a larger uh, story of my life of, of being racially profiled and so forth so the the point here is that as much as we talk about america as a, as being the land of the free or or whatever that um, freedom isn't free, and I don't mean that in the way that Uh, that some people mean where, you know, freedom has to come with the blood of patriots and so forth. But I mean that um, freedom comes a lot easier to some people than to others in a place like the United States. And I think that we must attend to that um, tension, first of all, in terms of the kind of abstract ideal of freedom. Mm. But when we're talking about freedom in law, there's another tension, which is that anytime we have a liberty Um, for a person, whether that be freedom of speech or, or freedom of religion or whatever. um, the only way that it works is if the law can constrain behavior as much as it can allow that behavior to happen. So one person's freedom of speech depends on the power of the law, often law enforcement to guarantee that that freedom of speech exists. So we see that when we have police officers protecting, say like white supremacist rallies, Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, one person's um, freedom of religion um, may be uh, perfectly permissible until it crosses a line. So we can think about um, uh, groups that practice plural marriage, uh, sometimes groups that practice plural marriage that involve underage spouses, right? So then there's a place, there's always a place where the state will step in and say, we need to protect. Um, this minor or this person um, from these people who might be preying upon them. I think that's totally reasonable, right? But it does mean that freedom always comes with contradictions. So sure. there's going to be some place where um, the coercive power of the state has to be balanced with, you know individual liberties. Um, so we want individuals to flourish, but we also need society to flourish. And there's going to be some balance between those things um, that that has to be struck.
0: Right. So, you know, and, um, and I'm thinking, yeah, too, because um, if if there is a freedom of religious practice in some way, that will inherently possibly anger somebody else who feels that their freedom is being infringed, and then a law gets passed— to protect one or more of those or both of those groups. And then there are new pieces of legal work that people can then sift through to find a window into how legalese can be upheld or struck down. So it's just very jarring for for me to read all of this because it just shows you, like like you said, it like kind of puts the notion of freedom isn't free squarely in your face. But it is it means so many different things than what we might hear of um, in the past. And, and other ways that that term was used
1: yeah and and i think that um you, you put your finger uh, uh, right on the the main point which is that you know we we tend to assume that the law is sort of absolute or unchanging but laws change both by being revised or or interpreted and so we have different stakeholders who will um take a concept like religious freedom and they, they will sort of recode it or reconfigure it so that it privileges their own interests. Um, I think that we've seen a lot of that uh, in um, the United States in, in recent decades, as well as across um, the, the history of the United States. Uh, but we also see that in Japan. And we see people who are trying to say that this thing counts as religion, and that thing doesn't count as religion, and the only thing that gets religious freedom is the thing that somebody has coded as religious. So I'm interested as a scholar of religion in that sort of uh, both rhetorical move and and I think it's a tactical move of getting political advantage.
0: Okay, so let's tie Japan in here now because that's where we're getting to in this conversation. So knowing all of that and knowing the complexity and the challenges of practical versus abstract idealism and religious freedom, Now I want to know a little bit about the 1889 Japanese constitution about religious freedom and what kind of guarantees um, pre-World War II Japanese society had regarding religious freedom.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, religious freedom enters Japan uh, in the mid 19th century as part of a diplomatic package. Basically Um, Japan, is establishing new um, diplomatic relationships with the United States and several other European countries. And one of the things that happens is that um, guaranteeing religious freedom comes to appear as part of a set of civilized practices. And um, Japanese political leaders in the late 19th century are really interested in presenting Japan as being civilized just like the United States or just like um, the UK. Okay, so... We've got this um, external pressure to make sure that Japan has religious freedom and that manifests itself in this 1889 Japanese constitution, um, which is modeled sort of on a German slash Prussian uh, model of of law, um, as well as a sort of like constitutional monarchy thing. So Article 28 of the... um, of the Meiji Constitution, as it's known, includes a guarantee of religious freedom that says, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but Japanese subjects um, shall, to the extent that it doesn't infringe on their duties and subjects, and to the extent that it doesn't um, infringe on peace and order, they shall enjoy religious freedom. So it's qualified, um, but it's qualified in exactly the way that we were just talking about, the constitution was trying to make it explicit that there is a place where people might cross the line where they um, religious freedom might infringe on public order. And so the framers of the constitution are trying to be clear about that. Um, But what's striking to me is that there is um, that the, Meiji Constitution is very clear about guaranteeing religious freedom, and its religious freedom guarantee looks a lot like the religious freedom guarantees um, in other constitutions that were being created at around the same time. Not only that, but it's actually relatively liberal compared to some European constitutions that were made at at roughly this time. Hmm. So for example, it does not designate a national religion, um, and it does not uh, designate any particular religion as being forbidden. So if we look at roughly contemporaneous constitutions in, um, the countries of Western Europe, we see some of them designating Judaism, for example, as being a forbidden religion, uh, that doesn't, that, uh, so, so Jews don't get rights. Um, and, and so the Meiji constitution by contrast actually looks quite, quite liberal, um, like other uh, sort of constitutional monarchies, it does designate the emperor as being sacred and inviolable. Um, but that's very similar to uh, the language that appears in, in in other constitutional monarchies, where they're trying to use the the idea of sacrality to um, to endow the, uh, the the political figurehead with some sort of power that goes beyond the mundane. Um, so, so that's, in a nutshell, what's going on with the, the Meiji Constitution.
0: Was there religious or spiritual diversity in Japan around the writing of the 1889 Japanese Constitution? Like, Is there any data showing like what the religious landscape was like in the country pre-World War II?
1: Absolutely. Um, it's a very complicated question, uh, in part because the concept of religion uh, was still large was still somewhat in flux um so uh let me just say that there's this major political transition um in 1867 1868 and when the new state the meiji state comes into effect um it it, it's not too much of an overstatement to say that a huge concern of the part of the the leaders of the meiji state is to try and figure out how to distinguish religion from politics and religion from education, and so um, there are a lot of fits and starts, a lot of trial and error that happens um, in rapid succession over um, the the last several decades of the 19th century. Now, I'm saying all of this to say that depending on which of these um, decades you look at, you might find something being coded as religion or as not religion. Okay. So. We have um across Japanese history from the sixth century, we've got Buddhism as um, a strong presence in the Japanese landscape. Uh by the late 19th century, we have many different Buddhist sects um, that are the dominant, they collectively represent the dominant religion of Japanese people. Um we also have Shinto shrines, uh, which are sometimes coded as being and, and in fact, the Meiji state sort of settles by the time of the Constitution on coding shrines themselves as being non-religious, kind of like um, civil uh, uh, institutions or civic um, monuments, kind of like the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and then, uh, but you also have a, a sort of brand of Shinto called sect Shinto, um, where you have groups of people who are devoted to particular Shinto kami or deities. There's Christianity, Um, a lot of intellectuals um, uh, convert to Christianity in the late 19th century. Uh, So there are a lot of people with political clout who are Christians. Um, And then there are a number of other religious practices, um, smaller groups that may be um, led by charismatic leaders um, based on healing practices and so forth. And sometimes those groups get treated as being, quote unquote, real religion. And sometimes they're targeted as being not real religion. So they get labeled with um, terms like lascivious heresies or pseudo-religious movements and things like that. Um, that's Inshi jakkyo in Japanese or uh, Ruijishu shukyo Dantai. So the, there, there's a, an incredible diversity going on in Japan, but effectively we could say that Buddhists come to kind of dominate the the discourse about what counts as real religion, while Shinto priests, I should say shrine priests, are caught in this sort of legal limbo where they're not really supposed to be doing religion, but um, many of them are still engaging in rituals that uh, a lot of people would say looks a lot like religion.
0: Okay, perfect. Okay, so now what I want to do is, now that we have a sense of... The legal constitution in Japan, the religious diversity pre-World War II in Japan, and also this notion of religious freedom. Now I want to jump ahead to a part of the book that I've been just like devouring, and that is the time period around World War II and the occupation. So, In the book, um, despite documented religious freedom in Japan, you write, this is a quote, Religious freedom, the story goes, only returned to life when the benevolent American occupiers swooped in to Japan at the close of the war, liberating Japan's citizens from their oppressive and theocratic government. And that quote stands in fairly stark contrast to everything you just said. Um, about the reality on the ground in Japan. So I guess this would be a good time as well to describe the concept described thoroughly in the book as State Shinto, about which I have many, many questions. So can you (laughs) describe a little bit about what State Shinto is because um, it frankly kind of sounds a little made up and uh, interesting.
1: (laughs) Right. So... um... There's this story that the occupiers told, and that um, still is repeated over and over again in Japan and the United States and elsewhere today. And the story is, is um, you know what what you read from the book just now, which is that Japan was utterly bereft of religious freedom. Um, the the occupiers often said that the Meiji Constitution only paid lip service to religious freedom, um, and that in actuality there was this um, utter mixing of uh or a a total amalgamation of religion and politics um sometimes people talked about this as emperor worship intriguingly uh for a long time um any americans who were interested in japan associated this more with buddhism than with shinto but uh but i'm ahead of myself let me just say that the 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 in the story the, the sort of received narrative is that, um, we should call this state Shinto. Um, so it is a type of religion that's, uh, that's fused with politics. Now, uh, when I started researching this book, I thought that I was, um, going to confirm that, um, state Shinto was this oppressive sort of religious, um, Way of organizing Japanese political life. I no longer I no longer agree with that, and in fact, um, I wrote the book to sort of tear apart the concept of state Shinto because I don't I think it sort of gets in the way of of what was actually happening on the ground. So state Shinto was not. Uh, uh, let's, I want to be really deliberate here. Uh, I argue effectively that. State Shinto is not what we thought it was. What I'm not saying is that Japan um, was not oppressive or anything like that. But I am saying that um, the occupiers had a project. And their project was to, um, uh, to promote religious freedom in Japan. That was their primary objective when it came to religion. But then there's this sort of change of hands at the State Department. Uh, and with it comes a, a very... Um, abrupt announcement that happens on American public radio, where this guy, John Carter Vincent says, um, we're going to get rid of national Shinto. This is the first time that the occupiers who were stationed in Japan, um, heard of this policy. Uh, so, um, what they're sort of forced to do is to think through this question of, well, what is national Shinto and how might that be contrasted with um, Shinto as sort of an individual um, uh, an individual creed? Um, so they have to make that distinction first. They also have to think about um, something else, which is a job that I would not want, which is how can an occupying army go about abolishing a state religion while also promoting religious freedom? Hmm. I wouldn't want this job um mm-hmm. but the it, it fell on it fell on the shoulders of this one dude William Bunce. um and and so Bunce has this this dilemma because he um he's supposed to eliminate this religion um that doesn't exist in law it's it, there is no state religion as we talked about before in the Meiji constitution so Um, but, but he's, but he's been told and he's in the military, so he can't deny, he can't defy his orders. He's been told to get rid of this national religion. So, um, what does he do? Well, he turns to, um, authoritative sources. He turns to people like me, he turns to scholars of religion. So he starts, um, undergoing this crash course with this, uh, Japanese scholar of religion named Kishimoto Hideo, um, and he ends up reading everything he can in English about Japanese religious history. And he picks stuff from those sources. And he basically comes up with something that will support the State Department's mission. So he says, um, Japanese uh, uh, Japanese political life has been dominated by this religion. Um, the religion is bad. It's a cult as opposed to being a real religion. So we're going to get rid of that. But then we can... Um, we can save the good part of it. So I argue in the book that basically, um, oh, and I should say that Bunce used the term state Shinto. He, began, he, he borrowed this term from religious studies scholars, um, but he used this term state Shinto to um, identify this, uh, this, what he would call a cult as opposed to a religion.
0: So I so, found this really interesting yeah, go ahead. because he's got like this predetermined conclusion in mind because he's been ordered to have a predetermined conclusion. But all the while he's actually undertaking a legitimate study to understand what religion is like in the very country that he's seeking to come to a predetermined conclusion on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's and you know, I really want to stress here, like Bunce was, incredibly conscientious. He was, he was clearly uncomfortable with his project, but he had no choice. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up kind of, um, you know, determining the, the, he, he had, yeah, he had no choice about what, what the conclusion was, but he did have a way, he did have some agency in terms of shaping the narrative. So I think that the best thing that he could do was to try and say, religion as it is or shinto as it is practiced by most japanese people is actually innocuous um it's it is uh, a relatively safe uh religion but in order to do that he had to um cordon off this other part and and say this is bad and what one of the things that i want to that i argue in the book and i want to stress here is that um, we tend to think about this as being about religion, but I think it's actually about secularism. It's actually about the the process and the sort of ideology of separating religion from the state or religion from politics. So what Buntz was um, identifying as being sort of like a bad religion is actually a bad secularism. He's trying to say they don't separate religion from politics properly, but we do. When they don't separate religion from politics, we're gonna call that state Shinto. When we separate religion from politics, we're gonna call that religious freedom. So religious freedom appears as the, um, or state Shinto appears as the sort of foil for the religious freedom, which is really what Bunce is interested in. Bunce wants to promote religious freedom as he understands it.
0: Okay, that is really interesting. Okay, so now, um, say you, Jolie and Thomas, say you're doing research right now, and I'm curious what it would be called if you had a a decision in mind for what you wanted your book and research to demonstrate, and then you went out and found all the research and uh, shaped what you found around what you already decided would be in your results category in like your next paper or book? Like what is this comparable to what Bunce has to do in what would he be called in like modern day, uh, academia?
1: Yeah, well, there are a number of different words that we use for describing this sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it kind of depends on which, um, which field you're in. But it, OK, so the, so it, like for an historian, what Bunce is doing is he's basically making a, a presentist narrative. Um, so he's is uh, saying, I need to identify what's going on right now. And he kind of reconfigures his um, the historical facts so that they um, come to explain uh, the present. Um, but this is also uh, akin to the sort of um, uh, what do you call it, like the ideological um, axe grinding that we see with some like um, some sort of uh, uh, ideologically driven um, think tanks and so forth, where um, it's called research, but really what we have is a, a, a promotion of a particular worldview. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, is there a particular word that you have in mind that? No, no, I don't. That, that um,
0: but one one thing that I really admire about your writing of the book is that I can see you sort of uh, changing your mind on certain topics as the book goes on. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you're, you're not, Uh I feel like you actually put a few moments in there where you sort of like have recognized when you've actually changed your own mind on stuff within the book.
1: That's, um, that's very astute reading. I, and, um, I, I was trying to be very deliberate about um, demonstrating how my own thought process has changed. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of telling my students that books actually are documentations of authors changing their minds. So a book is not a documentation of somebody always thinking the same way about something, but it's actually a record of somebody changing their mind about a particular topic or a question or whatever, and then sharing with others um, how they change their mind. Right. So um, that's what I, I, was, I was trying to get at. Like saying, I used to think this way, but now I I sort of came to this, and here's the evidence that brought me to this conclusion.
0: It's or, really it's really awesome. And so to get back to kind of like what we were talking about, so I can hear some listeners thinking. Um, but what about the veneration of the emperor or the idea that Japan was a divine nation? What would you say to like maybe a skeptical listener or a skeptical reader?
1: Yeah, great question. Really important. Um, So one of the things that I argue, um, especially in chapter one is that um, the Meiji, what I call the Meiji constitutional regime was Characterized by a separation of religion from politics, but um, that's not to say that all of the irrational or empirically unverifiable claims were removed from politics. Far from it. Um, and I think that this is true not only of. Um, of of pre-war and wartime Japan, but also, of virtually every other secularist state that exists today or, or has ever existed. I think that we build political, um, commitments and, and, uh, realities around, um, some things that, um, are just empirically unverifiable. So in, um, under the Meiji constitutional regime, I think this idea that the emperor is the descendant of deities uh, gets taken as being effectively a fact, uh, a, a historical fact, not um, a fiction. What I'm trying to say is that we could call that religion if we wanted to, and there are plenty of people who have done so. But as but in law, that was taken because it was taken as fact. It was taken to be true, legally true. And so it makes more sense to think about how that operated as a secular system rather than as a religious system. So I'm not denying the veneration of the emperor or this um, widespread idea that Japan was a divine nation. I'm saying, let's think about those things as operations of secularism rather than as operations of just religious thinking. Um, I think that that will be counterintuitive to some people. I also think that there are going to be some people who just will not, will not agree with me on that one. But I think that, um, it's, it it, is, it comes into relief when we think about, uh, things like, um, you know, American currency, having the words in God, we trust on it or, uh, the, um, or you know the making of in God we trust the the, the national motto or adding the words uh, pledge of allegiance to uh, or adding the words under God to the pledge of allegiance. There are a number of ways that um, you know the United States has also built um, these sort of you know to use a problematic term like sacralized statements into the fabric of political and economic life, um, and we take those things for granted. Uh, in in many respects, um, and and they may, but also they are um, capacious, um, essentially empty phrases that can people can put whatever they want to in. So some people who have very strong religious commitments, when they hear um, "one nation under God" or "in God we trust," that means something very spe- specific to them. And other people will be like, "Oh yeah, that's just kind of like an abstract way of saying we're all in it together" or whatever. And I think that. Um, we could assume the same was true of Japanese people under the Meiji Constitution.
0: Okay, so speaking of terminology, jumping off of what you just said, it seems to me that when Bunts and company um, in, in the United States would say things like religious freedom to the public— that can really, it means something different to everybody and it can mean whatever Bunce really kind of wants it to mean because there's almost no way that Americans at that time would know that state Shinto wasn't really a real thing and that religious freedom mm. existed in Japan before world war two under the Meiji constitution. It, what's the lesson here that we should learn?
1: Yeah. Um, a really interesting question. So I I think the first the first thing is that you know Bunce I think Bunce genuinely believed what he was doing. I I I, I think that he thought that State Shinto was real. Oh, okay. And I think that I think that he also thought that um religious freedom was real. He I mean I, I you know, he was like I said, he was a very conscientious man, but I don't think he was dissembling. I don't think he was like lying to people. I do think, however, that he had a um, a particular political project as a member of an occupying army. Um, and that project um, was to provide religious freedom to these people who uh, allegedly did not have it. Um, This is a a, a longstanding American conceit, by the way, we still see it today, um, that that we have religious freedom and and other people don't. Um, But uh, one of the points of the book is that if you want to make that kind of claim, then you have to invent religious freedom over and over and over again. You have to do so by saying this thing, like what these people are doing over here, that's not religious freedom. What we're doing over here, that is religious freedom. And... You know, over the course of American history and in American foreign policy, often the religious freedom that's been promoted has tended to privilege Protestant, um, Protestant Christian understandings of religiosity. And Occupied Japan is certainly a, a case in point. Um, but uh, what Bunce is, is saying, and the way that the American press picks up on Bunce's project, is to basically say, "Yes, we did it. We finally drew the line between." um you know what I, I'm thinking of a, a Time magazine quote from the time. And so it's like um this is the first uh official US attempt to draw the fine line between um social propaganda and genuine religious doctrine. Right? So there there's this notion that we're um the the American experiment with religious freedom, as some people are fond to of saying um, is not only happening in the United States, but that it's actually being exported to other places. And so, you know, one of the points that I'm trying to say is that Bunce wasn't dissembling, but we as Americans, and speaking as an American, I think we owe it to ourselves to look back at these moments and to think about, you know, did we tell ourselves a false story about what we were doing? And and I, I think that's a really crucial point um, aspect of understanding the politics of religious freedom in america past and present
0: okay so you can't really have religious freedom without this term religion or religious and you mentioned how most japanese folks who visit shrines or temples don't really call what they are uh do or are doing religion um is there like a a way that casual listeners can understand the difference of what this term religion means in Japan compared to what we might understand it as in um, another way?
1: Yeah. um, Great question. So this is, this is really, really tricky. Um, uh, Let's say that first of all, the concept of religion um, enters Japan relatively late, and it enters Japan as part of this diplomatic package that I mentioned early in our conversation, where um, religious freedom comes in to Japan, and with it comes this notion of religion. And then Japanese people who are trying to write these um, treaties with um, people like the Americans are sort of like, well, what is religion? What do the Americans mean by that? Um, so. Other scholars who have done really great work on this are Isomai Junichi, um, Jason Ananda Josephson, Storm, um, Trent Maxey. There are a number of people who have done really, really good work on um, showing how Japanese people came to uh, talk about a set of practices um, and group them together under the category religion. So eventually people are starting to recognize that buddhism and christianity are um two species of the same genus right um that was not necessarily uh, a a foregone conclusion be- before um, the late 19th century after the occupation this concept of religion is um has been solidified but then um people are still a little bit uncomfortable about whether what they're doing uh, when they uh, visit a temple or when they visit a shrine actually fits with what the occupiers have described as religion. Um, So in the second half of the book, I talk a lot about how the occupiers are trying to reconfigure religion and trying to convince Japanese people to think of religion as being individualistic, um, private, uh, a matter of personal choice, Um, and exclusive, so you only do one thing at a time. But that's not the way that most Japanese religious practice works. Um, For the vast majority of Japanese people, they might go to a Buddhist temple on one day and go to a shrine on another day. Uh, A lot of people will only think about um, visiting uh, a, a temple or shrine, either as part of an, an annual cycle of rituals, like, um, cleaning family graves, for example, around the, the time of the, uh, the two equinoxes, um, or, uh, when they need something. So, uh, I just bought a new car and I want to make sure I don't get into an accident. I drive up the hill and I receive a little, um, amulet from the Shinto priest just in case, right? So, uh, that doesn't match very well with American, um, or Protestant Christian understandings of religion. I'm not saying that all Americans are Protestant Christians, just to be clear, but, um, you know, that, that, the you know, in America, there's this sort of dominant notion of, um, religion is like, it's one religion per customer. Uh, it's private. It's about what you believe. And in Japan, that's not the way that most people, um, understand how they engage with, um, shrines and temples. They would think, um, well, this is what I do, or the belief sort of appears temporarily and then recedes into the background again. Um, I think this is one of the things that makes Japan particularly fascinating for a scholar of religion. Um, I, I think that in fact, Japan has tons to teach the broader, uh, you know, religious studies academy because the way that religion appears in in um, both individual and social life um, calls into question a lot of the things that would seem totally. Um, unremarkable to uh, to people based in America or elsewhere.
0: I tell you what, it's not just interesting to scholars of religion. Um, my high school students in the past, when we've talked about this notion that you can do more than one thing, be more than one thing, while also not really identifying specifically as any one of those things, that really blows their minds entirely. Mm. You know, it's really mm. cool. So you talked a lot about um, sites as well. Um, just now, about shrines and temples, uh what are some historical sites related to this topic of the book that you might suggest people visit if they want to sort of you know like quote unquote travel the book
1: yeah um <clears throat> so there there I kind of want to address this question I guess um, in two different ways um, first of all uh most of the documents that I read for this book, the primary sources, they're fabulous, they're rich, and they are readily available. Um, and there are tons of stories to tell both about the occupation of Japan and about um, what I'm calling the Meiji constitutional period. Um, so I, it, it's not particularly like tourist destinations, but... Just um, to sort of bookmark a couple of things, um, there's this wonderful collection of documents at the University of Maryland College Park called the Prang Collection. Um, And and very briefly, it's every document that was um, published in Japan during the first uh, five years of the occupation um, was subject to censorship, uh, which meant that the occupiers kept a copy of everything that was published. And this dude who was part of the occupation Collected all of that stuff and shipped it to the University of Maryland. Um, it's now available to people, and it is a fascinating trove of information about this um, really uh, rich period. So, um, one place that I would suggest going is actually just to College Park, um, both to visit the Prang Collection and then also the National Archives and Records Administration. Um, the the it's called NARA two uh, with the Roman numeral two. It's also based in College Park, and you can get access to occupation military government um, records. Um, but then, in terms of physical locations, a couple of places um, that uh, come up in the book that are really, really fascinating. Okay, so one, um, in chapter two and four, I spend a lot of time with this guy, Chikazumi Jokan. Uh, Chikazumi is his surname. He's a sort—he's a Buddhist priest, but he um, teaches a predominantly lay Buddhist audience, and he's got really um, strong opinions about religious freedom. He's interesting to me because he thinks that that real religious freedom is not egalitarian, and that it's actually discriminatory. There's a lot to unpack there, but I, I'll, I'll just say that he um, convinced a bunch of donors to give him money to build this. Um, this Buddhist church, essentially, um, very close to the University of Tokyo campus. It's called the Kyudo Kaikan, and it's been designated an important cultural property Um, Both for its architecture and and also for its sort of historical significance. So tons of um, prominent Japanese people were going to Chikazumi's basically Sunday school lessons um, where he would give um, lectures that were sort of like Buddhist sermons in this space that looked like a European church except that the altar was like a Buddhist, um, what's called a Rokakudo altar, like a six-sided altar. Um, There are, uh, you know, pews and and so forth. So this is a place that is open um, to visitors uh, on certain days of the week. And um, it's a really fascinating space. And and a lot of documents that I read um, for the book came from the archives uh, of Chikazumi's writings um, held there. And one other place that I would mention is that chapter three of the book is based in Honolulu. Um, I actually lived in Hawaii for a while. And so as I was doing research on the, um, on the, the chapter about Hawaii, one of the things that I noticed was that all of these places that I, um, had passed regularly or highways I had driven down had a history to them that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So um, I spend time with uh, this guy Imamura Emyo, uh, who was the abbot of um, the Hompa Honganji temple in in Honolulu. So that would be a place that I would recommend visiting. but also you know like um, the there were uh, sort of white, wealthy landowners who are very critical of um, Japanese Buddhists and what they were doing in Hawaii in the late uh, 1910s and the 1920s. And some of those people were like governors. Um, so uh, for people, who, for listeners who may have spent time in Hawaii, there's the Farrington Highway. Oh, yeah. Um, I've ridden my bicycle around the Farrington Highway and, and so forth, right? Beautiful area. Um, but uh, when you go to the historical record, you find uh, Wallace Barrington um, saying some really atrocious, very racist things about Japanese people. And so it's, it's interesting to sort of think about traversing that highway and then think about what this man was saying about um, what needed to be done to, to preserve the sort of racial hierarchies that dominated the plantation economy of, of Hawaii in the 1920s and so forth. Um, so that's a, th- those are just a couple of places that um, that have come to have different significance for me as a result of of reading this book.
0: Or you were never going to believe this, but I used to live on Farrington Highway. Oh no way! Yep, I uh, uh, um, I, I lived at the YMCA Camp Erdman at Kaina Point. Yes. And yes. on Farrington yeah. Highway and uh, outside of uh, Wailua and Mokulea. So I used to have a driver's license, a Hawaiian driver's license, and my address was on the Farrington Highway. So you just completely blew my mind.
1: It's Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, and and so you'll know from that area, there's also the Dillingham Airfield yep. Um And, uh, Dillingham is also a person who appears in my, uh, in chapter three, who's, you know, giving testimony to, uh, to the U S house of representatives about how Japanese laborers are a problem, um, because their religion makes them, um, insubordinate, uh, and, uh, that they need to be sort of replaced with, um, you know, preferably white people from Southern Europe or, uh or whatever but of course like negroes are not going to work it's just it's a it's an amazing sort of window into the the utterly racist um viewpoint of um the the early or the early 20th century um territorial
0: hawaii well you've just given me some things to think about on my next visit
1: nice Yeah. yeah um
0: well, Julian Thomas, um, I know you have a super fantastic, busy schedule coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, promoting the book, continuing your uh, on the lecture circuit. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and follow your work?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, first thing is that I am a fairly active person on Twitter. I can be followed there at um, JolionBT. BT, that's J-O-L-Y-O-N-B-T. I um, BT. I tweet a lot about uh, stuff that's going on with Japanese religion and politics and, and pop culture. Um, and then I have a website um, that I update very regularly. Um, it's Jolion, J O L Y O N, dot Thomas Research, that's all one word, T H O M A S R E S E A R C H dot org. Um, and, uh, yeah, so those are, those are the best places to, um, uh, find what's going on. And, um, and, uh, like I said, I, I update, um, the website, uh, quite regularly and I'm, um, constantly using Twitter as a procrastination tool. So you can find me uh, on there quite a bit,
0: man. Ain't that the truth? I get that so much. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Julian Thomas, university of Pennsylvania, author of faking liberties i am so delighted to have had you on the show because you have connected to my own life in many ways and so this has been truly a pleasure sir thank you so much for coming on the show
1: no thank you so much i really enjoyed our conversation
0: classical ideas is produced by me greg soden Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast.